doing the student murders, you wouldn't believe the fear, uh, fear in this town. I gave you the basics of the 1990 Gainesville student murders in episode three. There was some terrible crime scenes, a lot of brutality, a lot of disfigurement. It was kind of a turmoil. Five Gainesville College students were murdered over a weekend, the year after Tiffany Sessions disappeared from her walk, and a year and a half before Elizabeth Foster would be found buried in a shallow grave. The fear of the unknown and not understanding how this could be happening, especially in little old Gainesville, was horrific and terribly frightening. I included the student murders in this podcast to help paint a picture of what Gainesville, Florida was like back then, and because this case would be one of the reasons Elizabeth Foster's case was eventually tied to Paul Rolls and solved. But the student murders had a much broader impact than just context for other stories. The way these five young students, the Gainesville Five, were taken was beyond the stuff of nightmares. It became the inspiration for the movie Scream, but more importantly, it changed how law enforcement in Florida, and especially in Gainesville, worked forever. This was a pivotal moment in that town, and I promised you a bonus episode that would dive a bit deeper into that moment and more interviews with the detectives who helped solve the case. I just imagine it would be a dark chapter in Gainesville's history of a missing college student and then these five murders, horrific murders, and then of course eventually there'd be a few more. Yes, ma'am. It just, it had an impact on those of us that lived through it. It stayed with us a long time. I'm Haley Holloway and this is Shallow Graves. We're going back to the last weekend of August in 1990, the week before classes were supposed to start at the University of Florida. That's the week Gainesville, Florida, home of the Florida Gators, learned a whole new brand of fear. Students come into town, they're used to being mom and daddy, and they're, they got their freedom, and they're here to get an education, have a good time. They're not worried about their safety. They've got their own schedules, and not many people know what those schedules are. I mean, it's just a perfect place for a serial killer as a college town. Detective Sergeant Kenny Mack was working at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office back then when he and his colleagues were sent from one Gainesville apartment to another, finding one murdered college student after another, after another, never knowing when or from where the next call would come or who they'd find once they got there. I had two nieces that were college students one of them was in, in the same complex. When I got that call and they gave me the location, I said, oh, Lord, please don't let it be. Sonia Larson, Christina Powell, Krista Hoyt, Tracy Paulus, and Manny Taboda were the five Gainesville College students murdered over that weekend. First, roommates Sonia and Christina, the next day, Krista, and then two days later, roommates Tracy and Manny. And by that point, it was all hands on deck for local law enforcement. Back when the student murders happened in 90, what was your title? It went three and a half years from the investigation to the trial. And before I had finished, I made sergeant. So I was a detective sergeant when I finished the uh, student murders. 
You might remember from episode three that Detective Sergeant Legrand Hewitt found out about the first two murders while he was watching the news. Sonia and Christina had been found in their apartment, stabbed to death and posed. Their apartment was inside the city limits, so the Gainesville Police Department was handling their murders. But just a few hours after the news report about Sonia and Christina aired, the Alachua County Sheriff's Office found a third victim, this time in the county, their jurisdiction. This was Krista Hoyt, and she was one of their own. Who found Krista? Krista was one of our employees at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. She worked in our records bureau, and she was due to show up for work that night at midnight. And when she didn't show up, people that working in records had heard the news about the first crime scenes that the city was working. And so they got a little bit concerned and they started calling because she was a very punctual, reliable employee. And if there had been a problem, she would have called in. So they started calling her home. There was numerous messages from the sheriff's office on her answer machine where they were trying to get a hold of her. Finally, after an hour or so of her not showing up and they couldn't reach her, they asked the watch commander if he would have someone go by and check on her. Two deputies were sent to Krista's, and when there was no response to their banging on her door, one of them went to find a property manager to get a key, while the other went around to the back sliding glass door. He got on his hands and knees and shone his flashlight up through the sliding glass door, and he observed Krista on the side of the bed there, or her body. Detective Hewitt told me he'd gotten the call to head to Krista's apartment at about 2 o'clock that morning, and he stayed with this case from that phone call until the very end, years later. And so I'm going to let him walk you through this case and how he and his colleagues eventually put the pieces together. As a reminder, the details in this case are really, really graphic. What were you thinking? Well, going through the Crystal Hoyt crime scene, it was a, a very shocking, heinous crime scene. Nothing like I had ever experienced before, and I don't know of anyone that was on the scene that had experienced anything quite like that. Crystal Hoyt's apartment was very small. When you walked in the front door, it was a combination of kind of a living area and a kitchenette. And then as you walked down the hall, the bathroom was on the right-hand side. And then you entered into her bedroom area. As the deputies took this walk through Krista's apartment, they realized whoever had been there just before them had been very deliberate in his decisions, and they eventually determined that their killer had actually set up his crime scenes so that whoever walked in after him would be met with horror. As you entered her bedroom, you walked face to face to a bookshelf, and on the bookshelf was her decapitated head propped up there. We later learned that that bookshelf came from right next to the front door in a little alcove area. And we believe that the bookshelf was originally moved so that the perpetrator could stand in that alcove and wait for her to come through the front door and grab her from behind. And then later he used it to prop her head on. Detectives later confirmed that the crime scenes were left in a specific way to send a message to law enforcement. At Krista's, the killer had moved this bookshelf to put her head in a certain place, and then he turned it to face her body, which was posed. 
He wanted law enforcement to show up to these staged scenes to scare them and to last in their minds forever. That sounds like the most horrific crime scene I've ever heard of. Had you seen anything like that? No, ma'am. Never seen um, a crime scene like that where the body had been dismembered and disemboweled and mutilated like Krista's was. Imposed? What was Imposed. that about? We didn't know at the time, but later we learned that he had actually killed her and left her laying on the bed. And he left the scene. And he got back to his campsite and he couldn't find his wallet. And he was in fear that he had dropped it in a crime scene. So he returned to the crime scene in the dark early morning hours, a few hours after he left it. At that time, the body had started setting in rigor. It is our understanding that's when the mutilation took place and he could, because of the rigor, pose the body a little bit. And so he, he posed the body on the side. Why did that? Uh, I have no idea. I can tell you that in every crime scene that we know of, he posed at least one of the bodies in each one of the crime scenes. Detective Hewitt told me the killer had also eaten at each of the apartments, and at the first one, he'd even stopped to take a shower. Krista's was the only one he returned to. Her uh, body was sitting on the edge of the waterbed, slumped over with her elbows on her knees, and her body was leaned over towards the sliding glass door. So. And is that how he came in? He came in through the sliding glass door, yes ma'am. It had pry marks on it and a busted lock. He pried the back door open, the back sliding glass door. Keep that in the back of your mind. Krista had a sliding glass door and the detectives had noted there were pry marks on that door frame. So they were thinking the killer might have used a screwdriver to pry open her sliding door. Okay, and then the final one, were you called to that one? Yes ma'am. It was uh, Tuesday morning. We were in our roll call. Sonia and Christina had been found on Sunday, and Krista later that night, early Monday morning. The next morning, Tuesday, when Detective Hewitt and his co-workers were in roll call, they heard about a third crime scene with the fourth and fifth victims, Manny Taboda and Tracy Paulus. The final crime scene was found by a friend of Tracy in a maintenance van. You can imagine, after Krista was found, the media all day Monday, day and night, was publicizing these three students being found murdered. So, you know, it was broadcast everywhere. An out-of-town friend of Tracy's had seen the news reports about the murders, and she called her friend to check on her. She had talked to Tracy Sunday night, and she said, Tracy, are you okay? Da, da, da. Yes, I'm okay. I'm not going to go to bed till Manny gets home. Manny worked till 2 o'clock in the morning. And so, all day Monday... She couldn't get a hold of Tracy. And so she called a mutual friend and said, go by and check on her. Will you go by and check on her? Will you go by and check on her? Finally, Tuesday morning, she hadn't heard from him. said, if you don't go by and check on him, I'm driving up there from South Florida. So he went over there, knocked on the door, couldn't get a response, went and found a maintenance person, and they opened the front door and they could see from the front door 
The same thing that had happened at the other apartments happened at Tracy and Manny's. An employee at the complex unlocked the door to the apartment only to find the latest gruesome crime scene. And that's when Detective Hewitt was sent out to the Gatorwood apartment. As you entered, there was a small dining area on the left and the kitchen, kitchenette kind of thing was on through the dining room. Through the living room was a small hallway and in that hallway was Tracy's body posed. And as you continue on down the hallway, you went straight into Manny's room. As you entered, Manny's body was still on his bed. Numerous stab wounds, a lot of cast off blood on the ceiling and walls. Manny, the 23-year-old, 200-pound former football player, had fought back hard. He had been sleeping when the killer came in and decided to take care of him first. The killer himself said Manny almost stopped him. Manny and Tracy brought the total to five students who'd been stabbed to death in four days. And Gainesville, Florida, was chaos. The sheriff's office and police department started giving two press conferences a day to 100 news reporters from around the world. They'd flocked to this college town, demanding effort and answers from those frantically working the case. But beneath that turmoil was fear. These students had been hunted, tortured, and slaughtered, and no one knew if or when there might be more. Even young people that weren't students, because I was past 30 at the time, probably 31-ish, and I was scared. I'm not a college student. I didn't live in a college complex, but I was scared. Day by day, student after student, what was that like? Well, it started on a Thursday or Friday, and it was very fast. You might recognize Linda Brown's voice from previous episodes this season. She spent her entire career at the sheriff's office and was there when the Gainesville Ripper came to town. With it happening so fast, the Mondays when all of the, the really knowledge and information came out. And the information that came out was terrifying. These victims had been mutilated so horrifically, I don't even want to describe it. They'd all been stabbed to death. Some of the women had been raped. Some were posed. And all of their apartments were left to add an additional layer of shock. This was unheard of. And the state of Florida pulled together as many resources as possible to try to track down this killer. We had law enforcement coming from all areas of the state and I believe some outside the state. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement came in and created a task force with both the sheriff's office and the police department. And so that was contained at the Gainesville Police Department facility. And the Gainesville Homicide Task Force, maybe better known as the Student Murder Task Force, was made up of the FBI, the FDLE, and detectives from the Alachua County Sheriff's Office and the Gainesville Police Department. And the sole job of this task force was to investigate the murders of these five students. They had to figure out who was behind these attacks, and they were racing against the clock, hoping they could figure it all out before any other students were killed. But while that was going on, while the task force was trying to solve this puzzle, even more law enforcement was needed to protect the city from this unknown serial killer on the loose. And so every single officer and deputy with the local agencies 
worked every day. And the state brought in even more officers and deputies from the Florida Highway Patrol and FDLE to neighboring local agencies. They came to help with patrols, safety checks, and the nonstop investigating on the streets. So we were inundated with law enforcement personnel, which we were thrilled and grateful for. What started happening was anytime anybody needed to go from point A to point B alone, we would provide escorts. That was publicized and that's what we did. So the communication center was dispatching officers and deputies to do walks just to accompany you from an apartment building to a car. Linda told me she remembers students having big sleepovers, where a bunch of them would stay under the same roof, even in the same room, to sleep and try to stay safe in numbers. The community was buying baseball bats and guns. The president of the University of Florida canceled classes, and hundreds, if not thousands, of students left Gainesville and went home. So many people were literally living in fear for months because with no answers and no killer in cuffs, they were left bracing for another set of brutal attacks. But those attacks would never come. The only reason they stopped was because he was in custody in another area. That's the only reason they stopped. Okay, this part is big. The murders had stopped. The fifth victim, Tracy, was the final victim. And there weren't any more murders connected to the first five because the killer was already behind bars somewhere else for something else. But law enforcement didn't know that. It hadn't occurred to anyone to look for someone who had already been put away for a different kind of crime. And so as the task force worked this case, they brought in suspects, they looked elsewhere, they were combing the databases, so on and so on. Their guy was already sitting right under their noses. Our agency being so young and so inexperienced in, in serial killings, something of that nature, it didn't occur to our investigators. The entire task force didn't from my understanding, did not recognize that Mm -hmm. at the early stages. It's a lot easier to see this in hindsight. But back then, all detectives knew to work with was what had already happened, what they could see had happened at those three Gainesville crime scenes. But while the detectives worked through those apartments trying to piece together those clues, more clues would be found at another location after another crime. Well, myself and my sergeant, who was Kenny Mack, headed back to the Crystal Hoyt crime scene to do additional follow-up when this bank robbery went down, and we responded to the bank robbery. Okay, stay with me here because the timeline can be a bit confusing. Detective Hewitt is taking us back a couple of days to Monday the 27th. At this point, all five victims had been killed, but only the first three had been found and detectives Hewitt and Mack were headed back to help work through Krista Hoyt's apartment when a call came in about a bank robbery just down the street from Krista's, and they were rerouted to check out the bank. The person that did the bank robbery had just left, and we didn't literally chase him across the parking lot, but they pointed in that direction. We ran across the parking lot. We could find where the dye pack had exploded. There was a few bills with dye pack stains on them. And so we knew the route that he had taken. We called in K-9 and they tracked, but they didn't find the suspect. But they did find a campsite and clues there that would tie back to both the bank robbery and eventually the murders. At the campsite, we found the money that had been taken in the robbery. We found clothing, bags of clothing. We found a small tent. 
There was a small cassette tape recorder. Some jewelry was found. And then the, the following day, during daylight hours, they did a search of that wooded area and they found the bag that had been used in the robbery along with a ski mask and a pair of sports gloves inside that bag. The detectives also found a screwdriver, and so they sent that to their lab. And so the screwdriver, we said, huh, wonder if that screwdriver matches our prime marks at all three crime scenes. And the lab had already did castings and stuff off the sliding glass doors and learned that the screwdriver we were looking for was made by a um, tool company and they knew what tool company it was. The screwdriver we found at the crime scene was a name brand that was sold from Walmart. So it wasn't a name brand we were looking for, so they eliminated it. Does that make sense? The lab had been able to figure out the exact brand of screwdriver the killer had used to pry open his victim's apartment doors. And when detectives had found this screwdriver at the campsite relatively close to the crime scenes, they thought maybe they had the screwdriver from the murderer. But when they sent it off to the lab to have it examined, the lab came back and said no. The screwdriver your killer used at the crime scenes was this specific name brand. And the screwdriver you guys sent us from the woods is from Walmart. Sorry, but this isn't the tool you're looking for. Meanwhile, Detective Hewitt said all of the information they'd gathered from the students' apartments had been entered into something called VICAP. It's this massive international database for the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. It started back in the 80s as a way for law enforcement to track data from cases across jurisdictions, especially violent homicides. Someone recognized that killers don't always stick to one city or state, and so this database gave the FBI a way to see similarities between cases across the country. Well, when the task force put everything from the student murders into that VICAP database, they got a hit from another crime with some similarities to the student murders. But the scene of that other crime was in Shreveport, Louisiana. In the early stages of the investigation, like within the first week or two, we had an investigator go to Shreveport because that was such a similar type. And it was so similar when it got out there looking at their crime scene and their information. And Shreveport was so interesting. They sent investigators back to Gainesville in the hopes that we would get our case cleared pretty quick and they would be able to tag along and clear their case. That's how close it was. In November of 1989, almost a year before the student murders, there had been a triple murder in Shreveport, Louisiana, where a college student, her father, and her nephew had all been found dead in their home. The Shreveport police were looking at a guy named Danny Rawling for those murders. Rawling had grown up in Shreveport, where his dad was a police officer, and Danny, who was a career criminal, had fled the town after shooting his dad in the head. Well, the dad survived, and Danny turned up in Ocala, Florida, which is like 45 minutes south of Gainesville. He was in jail there, and he was being held for a robbery. When Rowling's name came up and they said he was a robber, it clicked that we had that bank robbery that day. And we went back and started tearing apart the bank robbery stuff again, and we pulled it back out of evidence. 
the pieces were starting to look like they might fit together, and the detectives decided to go ahead and get Danny Rawlings' DNA. He had a tooth extracted, so they used the tooth and some gauze from the procedure, and they got an additional blood sample, and they sent all of that off to the lab. Back then, DNA took like 17 days to get a DNA profile, but when they took his blood, his blood matched. Then it matched the secretor, then it matched the enzymes, so we were pretty sure. So while the lab was doing their DNA work, we were going back and finding out all the historical doing about Danny Rowling and finding out all his robberies. He had been in prison three different states, I believe, and escaped from each one of those facilities. While all of that was coming together, the lab finished its second look at the campsite screwdriver, and it turned out they'd messed up the first time. And that's when they found out that this name brand company, tool company, did make these screwdrivers to be sold in a packet through Walmart for a gift packet of screwdrivers. The screwdriver from the campsite was finally connected to the student murders. Law enforcement had found it in the woods with other possessions that were linked to Danny Rawling the day they discovered Krista's body, which means they'd had the answer before they'd even found the final victims. And so we could have tied it together in September, but it was, it was a mistake, you know, uh, something that was overlooked. This discovery had taken months. It was late January by the time Danny was publicly brought into the picture, and there'd been all this frenzy and fear and torment for everyone involved. These months took a huge toll on the victims of the families, on law enforcement, but also a few others. Throughout this investigation, the task force had been publicly discussing several men that they were looking at as suspects. And then news outlets would start digging into the lives of those men and putting them on TV and in the papers and talking to people who knew them about their lives and personalities. And probably the most notable of these was an 18-year-old UF freshman named Ed. His name had been given to police as someone with strange behavior around the time of the murders. And the police inquired, have you seen anybody unusual? A number of people said yes. I'm just a regular normal person, you know. I'm a pretty, pretty good guy, you know. Ed had hit or pushed his grandmother shortly after the murders and was sent to jail. He was questioned there about the student murders and seemed to become the chosen one. Ed had some pretty serious mental health problems, which were constantly used against him. And he also had some really big scars on his face that were from a bad car wreck. And they made him look like the poster boy for the student murders. Ed was in jail for something unrelated, but his bail spiked to a million dollars. And even after they found out he had a different blood type than the killer and his DNA did not match the semen found at the crime scene, the task force continued to insist they had some other kind of evidence against him. Humphrey was confirmed early on by the PIOs as a suspect in the case, and that's never changed. Um, when this all comes to light, the public will understand what evidence there is against Humphrey and why the focus on him has been as sustained as it has been over this lengthy period of time. But we've never lost interest in Mr. Humphrey. Even after Danny Rawling had been named the prime suspect, Ed's name was still pushed, though no evidence tying him to the murders ever came out. 
More than a year after the killings, a grand jury chose not to indict Ed for the crimes. But for many, his name is forever connected to this case. He stands in line in the grocery store and people turn around and when they see it's him, they go <gasps> and gasp. It's over with, but it's, you know, the, the hurt and the pain that it's caused. I don't think that'll ever go away. Danny Rawlings' DNA did end up matching the DNA found at the crime scenes, and detectives were also able to tie him to a tape player they'd found with the screwdriver in the woods. It had his voice on it, his name. He identifies himself, his singing, his talking, and it actually had a fingerprint on it that we later identified as his. They had finally found the Gainesville Ripper. Your Honor, the foregoing evidence supports a finding that this plea of guilty is supported by sufficient facts to establish that the defendant, Danny Harrell Rowling, is in fact guilty of each and every crime alleged in the indictment, beyond and to the exclusion of a reasonable doubt. But there was still a lot of drama for years after that because Danny Rawlings seemed to love the attention he was getting. He was one of those guys who got engaged to a fan of his while he was in prison. He co-authored a book with her about the murders and would eventually claim he'd committed the murders because he wanted to be as famous as Ted Bundy. In fact, that's why many people refuse to pronounce his name the way it's spelled. R-O-L-L-I-N-G. The woman tasked with briefing the media about the investigation every day, Sadie Darnell, had heard that Danny didn't like it when people said his name incorrectly. After all, he wanted to be famous. And so every time she talked about him, Sadie called him Danny Rawling. And it stuck. Accordingly, it is ordered in a judge that the defendant, Danny Harold Rawling, is hereby sentenced to death. The defendant is hereby committed to the Department of Corrections of the state of Florida for execution of this sentence as provided by law. May God have mercy on his soul. Done and ordered this 20th day of April, 1994. Danny did eventually confess to the student murders and was executed for them in 2006. In his last days, he finally admitted to the triple murder in Shreveport, handing a note to his spiritual advisor that said, quote, I and I alone am guilty. It was my hand that took those precious lights out of this old, dark world. I found a lot of similarities between Danny Rawling and Paul Rolls, especially from their childhoods. But while Paul Rolls wanted to hide from the spotlight and be the only one to know about his heinous sins, Danny Rawling wanted to be famous and known for his. And I'm not sure which is worse. But I am sure that the two of them changed Gainesville, Florida forever. And I can't imagine that there's anyone who lives in that little town who doesn't know at least a piece of what they did to the people who lived there three decades ago. In fact, there's a wall in the middle of town spray-painted with the names of the Gainesville Five. Krista Hoyt, Sonia Larson, Christina Powell, Tracy Paulus, and Manny Taboda. It's been maintained for 33 years because Gainesville will never let their names be forgotten. While we may recognize that similar tragedies have occurred elsewhere in communities large and small, these five outstanding people were ours. They belonged to us, and we must accept the pain of their loss. Sonia Cristina, Manuel, Kristen, Tracy brought us that commitment to knowledge and accomplishment that forms the basis of this community and gives it 
its special character. I think the biggest impact of these serial killers, outside of what they took from the victims' families and the victims themselves, is on law enforcement. Many of the people I interviewed for this podcast pointed back to these years. The Tiffany Sessions, student murders, Beth Foster years. That's when things changed, they told me. That's when they learned how to react to a missing person report, how to search for suspects. It's when they learned that these cases are often perpetrated by someone who's done it before. And that they can organize criminals they already know about. And those criminals might be right under their noses. When the student murders came along, we developed a, a quite extensive database. And from then on, we had a murder that wasn't, you know, this one arguing over that one. We ran things through that database all the time. Do you think there are more answers in the database still, just waiting to be found? I think there are. I think there are. And in Tiffany's case and Beth's case, I said, you know, there's a piece of information that's already been found, that's already been documented, that's being overlooked. What that piece of information is, I can't tell you, but I guarantee you it's probably in there. Isn't that kind of crazy? How rare do you think that there could be a serial killer that was just here? You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Walk out in this lobby and tell me who's not a serial killer. I mean, they don't have a name written on them. They're just everyday people most of the time. I'm Haley Holloway, and I want to thank you for listening to this season of Shallow Graves. And I also want to tell you, there's going to be another one. So, this story is wild. This is maybe one of the craziest cold cases I've heard of in Gainesville, maybe anywhere else. It's just nuts. I remember when you and I were working on Tiffany Sessions' case, and I remember saying to you, someday we should talk about the Judy McFarlane case. I first started working cold cases with this detective when I was a TV news reporter in Gainesville, Florida. We're 10 years in now and agree that of all the cases we've covered together, this is the biggest puzzle of them all. That, in my opinion, is the greatest mystery of any of the 40 cold case homicides that I've read here. It just has so many twists and turns and so many crazy angles. Judy McFarland disappeared in 1992 only to be found five months later by a prison lawn crew. The body of the mother of four had been left in a gated and locked retention pond, and nobody could explain how she got there. Two things could have happened to her. She could have committed suicide, or somebody murdered her and put her in that hole. My opinion initially, she killed herself. But then the question lingers, how did she get in that pond? The how of this case seems impossible to nail down, but the why and the who are even more complicated. There are plenty of suspects in that case, as you know, and a couple of them have motive and opportunity. First on the list, a Bible study teacher who may not have been honest about the last time he saw Judy alive. Overall, where is he on your list? I think fairly high. I didn't trust him, and I don't know that I believe him. Then there's a family friend who was the only one to be in two house fires connected to Judy's family, one right before her death 
the other right after. He's the one who was so often in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he just happened to be in two full house fires. I wonder what the statistical probability is of being in two houses that burned to the ground within six months of one another. Yes. We have the sister's boyfriend, who Judy helped send to jail for domestic violence. Bobby Norris, in my opinion, is the strongest suspect in this case. Bobby Norris got out of jail on January the 13th, 1992, and Judy McFarland was reported missing on January the 16th, 1992. And you always have to look at the husband, right? But this time, the husband brings additional suspects with him. The drug cartel. Yeah, how about that? How about that? Judy's husband being a pilot for the Mexican drug cartel. <laughs> wow. The detective is as bewildered by this case as I am, but even more so by the lack of investigation into such an obvious murder. There's no report of a death investigation into the possible murder of Judy McFarlane, and her name was never added to the cold case list at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office, which means no one touched her case for more than two decades. They didn't care. She wasn't important. Nancy, do you know about how many times you contacted the sheriff's office or visited there asking for them to take a look at Judy's case? I'd say probably eight times. I would call, I would get call bags. I spent hours and hours and days just trying to get them to look at her case. No one would speak to me about her. How could this basically have gone away from the time we found her body? I fear the same thing you fear. Since no one was really banging on our door demanding justice for Judy, we didn't choose to do that ourselves. So we've agreed to try and do right by Judy together. But for the first time, one of our cold cases has a time limit. And that's because the detective is retiring and this will be the last case he reopens at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. Do you think her case can be solved? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Haley Holloway, and that's all on this season of Shallow Graves.